0: Welcome to the God is not an asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your host, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self.
1: Hey, this is Carrie, and we are here today with author and my friend Zach Hunt. I am so excited uh, to have you on the on the podcast today. He is the author of the brand new book "God Breathed." What's is there? What's the tagline? Um,
2: what there? it means for the Bible to be divinely inspired.
1: Ah, and what I love about this this book is that it's going to deeply challenge pretty much all of the assumptions that. Society and that that especially evangel- evangelical Christians have about about scripture and interpretations of scripture and I can't wait to dive into this conversation because if there's any com- if there's any person who can speak more to the idea that God is not an asshole I think it's it's <laughs> you <laughs> I think and, you. and this book I think and, and this book is is really is really going to be um, a powerful a powerful thing so why don't we jump in I want to get to the billboard thing because you were just telling me about some amazing billboards that you're going to be hopefully putting up but before we get into that let's just tell us a little bit about what the, gist of the book is
2: sure um so i know words i i will have them let me let me start with <laughs> words that. are cool.
1: always helpful especially for <laughs> authors right <laughs> yeah no, <laughs> no that's totally not really embarrassing
2: sorry i flubbed it right out of the gate. <laughs> Um, okay. I, I had like this idea in my head of what I was gonna say, but then another idea popped in. I was like, no, I should do that. So let's start <laughs> with the second one. So the yeah. the story of this book um actually starts way back in 2014-ish, 2013. I wrote a blog post called uh The Bible Isn't Perfect, uh and it says so itself. So terrible title, long, clunky, whatever. Um, but it was just it was making the point. Um that you know, we look at this passage in Second Timothy about the God that all Scripture is God breathed, right? And most of us grow up, you know, all of us grow up hearing, "Well, God breathed means it's inspired," and you know that's true across the theological ideological spectrum. Whether you're fundamentalist or hardcore liberal, the idea that the Bible is in some sense inspired, most of us agree on. You know, the, the problem is well, what does what does that actually mean? You know, what does inspiration look like? You know, in practice. And so I. I took that passage and tried to take it a different direction, uh, because you know, God-breathed is a unique word, theonoustos, uh, which is the Greek word that, that Paul uses. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, um, and that turn of phrase is not used really anywhere else in the Bible, um, at least not that specific. But there is an image, you know, there are images, really, um, but one in particular that gives us, I think, a clue or some context to this idea of being God-breathed, and that's the opening chapters of Genesis, when God takes dirt from the ground and breathes life into them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so when I read God breathe, I, I hear an echo of of you and me. I mean, because we are God breathes, and we're not mm-hmm. perfect, uh, and yet we're able to still tell the story. You know, of the people of God and the story of, and proclaim you know the good news. And so, you know, what I hear in that is uh, some good news, even of itself, that God trusts us to be involved in this storytelling and to be part of this this journey um, and to be trusted with it, even though we're not mm-hmm. perfect. And so I, I dove into mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff in the book, but that original post, you know, was along those lines and a gentleman by the name of Ken Ham um, found out about <laughs> it. Um, that would be Ken of the uh, creation museum and uh, yes. replica up there in Kentucky. He caught wind of it and wrote a post uh, about how I was, you know, a heretic and, and all these other things. And it got back to my publisher and turned out that we had a, uh, a difference in theology that I don't think either one of us realized. And, um, mm-hmm this was right up next to the publication of the book you know my book uh, at the time that i was working on uh, was on the cover of their fall catalog to be to be published uh, and so we we had a parting of ways within gosh a month or so before it actually went to press and uh, oh. yeah so anyway i have a friend of mine uh, who was also an author with that publishing house had a copy of that catalog and he sent it to me and, um, I got it framed. And so it, it sits in my office now, you know, as, as motivation, and it's sitting directly in front of me right now, about five feet away. And it, it spurred the idea that, you know, turned into this book, Godfrey So my plan or our hope to do at least is to, uh, to drive up to the creation museum and, and give Ken a copy of the book. Um, when I, <laughs> Ken, uh, cause it was really, work that. That, that got us here, but yeah, the, the idea, you know, the book is, is to hopefully to do two, really two things, depending kind of on what end of the spectrum. i wanted to challenge all of us, you know, to, uh, take a step back and reassess some of the, the preconceptions, um, the, the, the assumptions that we have about scripture, because, you know, especially if you grew up in church, you know, I think most of us going to Sunday school all our lives going kind to of have this idea. Well, I'm a biblical expert because I've talked about it every day. You know, for my entire life, and and I've read it. But you know, the Bible is is was written by people who, you know, very much um, not like us. You know, in times rather than our own. You know, and so there's a lot of you know assumptions that we bring to the text, and and that's okay. I mean, we we all do that. You know, but the problem is most of us don't acknowledge that. You know, or realize that. So. I hope to challenge folks to to step back and maybe look at some of the assumptions they have about, you know, what the Bible is, where it came from, how it functions. And My favorite
1: I'll... is, you know, when people say that scripture is clear, right? Scripture yes. is cleared. Is it really though? But is it really?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's the other thing is that, you know, it's it's not. You know, I, I want to get to all of those sorts of things, like these like phrases like the Bible says, well, you know, that's a meaningless statement because you know, the Bible it's like saying the library says, um, you know, because the Bible is not a book, it's, it's a collection of books, you know, it's mm-hmm. like a library or, or like a, you know, I, I think more like an anthology in unlike a library, it's, it's tied together, you know, it's not just random books, but, but the yeah. Bible is clear. So, you know, all those phrases I, I hope to tackle and try to turn upside down. Yeah.
1: Tur- yeah. So, so here's a little theological, um, pushback because I, and not, not that I believe in this statement, but I'm okay. imagining what the, what the pushback might get, um, wh- the kind of pushback that you might get from somebody who's trying to insist that the Bible is clear. And, you know, yeah. um, so for example, you said earlier that you use the example that we're not perfect, right? We are God breathed, but we are not perfect. But what might somebody, what would you just say to somebody who'd said, oh, but we were before the quote but fall like that great fall right like right. so so how do you acknowledge or respond to a question like that
2: um well twofold you know i would say that you know one we weren't perfect before the fall you know that's mm-hmm. i mean it's not in the bible um mm-hmm. if we're gonna talk about the bible says you know the bible doesn't mm-hmm. say that anywhere um the bible calls us good uh and it never ceases mm. to call us good you know so that that idea is not there what what that idea stems from is Um, This Augustinian, meaning St. Augustine, idea of original sin, you know, the Adam and Eve sin, and then sort of passed genetically through the human race. Um, And, you know, he's an uh, ironic character because I lean on him heavily actually in the book to take it in a radically different, uh, the Bible in a radically different direction uh, because he borrows from Jesus, you know, like most theologians do. And he he says in his book uh, on Christian theology, which was written in the fifth century. Um, I think off the top of my head, and he says, you know, no matter how great your exegesis is, your interpretation of scripture, you know, no, obviously paraphrasing here, but, you know, no matter how great you think that your translation or grammatical work or, or whatever it is, if your interpretation of a particular verse doesn't lead you to love God and neighbor, then you're wrong. I'm like, period. Mm-hmm. You know, and, okay. and that's just riffing off of Jesus with the greatest commandment when the law uh, teachers of the law come to him and ask him what the greatest commandment is, and he says, Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. But then he says, you know, everything, um, the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so what he's saying is everything in scripture and really, therefore, everything in the faith hangs on this call to love. And so what Augustine is doing is kind of bookending that idea and saying, well, we have to begin and end with love. You know, every, all of our interpretations have to begin with that framework that, that what this story is doing is. This story, the people of God and the Bible is doing ultimately is trying to teach us how to love our neighbors better. And you know, no matter what we read in the Bible, if 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 we apply that in a way that leads us to doing something that's unloving, then then we're wrong. No matter how clear. Mm-hmm. Our
1: One of the when you said earlier that um, it's it, the Bible says that we are good, right? That mm-hmm. and I I think what you're referring to is that that we're told, right? That that and and what that actually means in the hebrew is is working as as it should right that that everything is working the way it should be working which means communities are working to support and to uphold and to care for each other so it doesn't mean that everything is always awesome right. but it does mean that things are, are working as they should, a community, a family, uh, a human body, a human being, right? We are all working the way we should, which means the full spectrum of the experience, but right. also feeling supported. And, you know, so I just, I think that's amazing. Absolutely. What is, um what's a really cool, or what's one of your favorite scriptures that might be taken out of context that's actually not so clear? Like, give us some examples of some of the stuff that you talk about in the book.
2: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the one that, there's several um okay. you know one that jumps out immediately um you know would be like uh, jeremiah 29:11 you know i know the plans i have for you says the lord you know and that's been hijacked into this you know individualistic uh you know roadmap for each of our lives you know when that's you know has nothing to that's not at all what that passage is about you know it's god speaking uh through the prophet to the people of god in exile but the god is Bringing them out of exile, just like God brought them out of slavery, just like God will bring us out of you know despair and ruin and death, you know in in the uh, with the resurrection and then with the second coming. But then there's you know the passages like women be silent in the church or slaves obey your masters or uh, you know going back to the Hebrew scriptures, you know in Deuteronomy, um, you know if your child is unruly, take them outside the camp and stone them to death. In the way that we, I think a lot of us. You know, are taught to use the Bible is almost like a scientific textbook or a book of mm. facts or you know a new law where you can just take these verses and these commands you know uh, in isolation and then apply them you know because that's kind of how our understanding of salvation works. Salvation is about faith alone about believing the right things. You believe the right things, you go to heaven. Well, to believe the right things, you need to know what they are, and that's why the Bible is there to give us this list. And so, you know, one of the things that the you know big thing again to go back to the call to love with with god breathe this is trying to tackle these contentious difficult passages head-on you know and not okay. just trying to wipe them away and say oh well, you know it's a different time or maybe it was a mistranslation or, or things like that you know what what i'm trying to do is is follow in the path of of another guy who preceded um augustine's scene or-, or not saying he was actually a heretic um <laughs> deemed a heretic falsely several centuries later most people agree with that um but Origen, who is one of the most influential Mm -hmm. church fathers outside of augustine and he says that god allows certain stumbling blocks the holy spirit in particular to be in scripture to draw us deeper into the word beyond the literal words on the page and into the spiritual truths that god is trying to teach us and so okay hold on
1: hold on i have to ask a question though doesn't that make god an asshole (laughs) like doesn't that make god an asshole because like if we're sitting here like trying our best we're we're down here trying to figure this this stuff out you know what i mean and trying to live life when we have all these amo- annoying emotions and things that ha- trauma things that happen to us right and then we're going to say well god put this stumbling block in front of me as a test or to help me reach my best self or something like that, doesn't that make God an asshole? Like, why would God not just, like somebody came to, said it to me just this morning, why, if, if they're really, if spirit is real, then why not just like appear? Why not just like, you know, make themselves clear to me? <laughs>
2: so. That is an excellent question. I do not have an answer to the uh, making things clear in a because I'm right with you on that one. Um, but in this with 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 God being an asshole in the sense of like allowing or even putting it in stumbling blocks, i I pin the assholery. I don't know if that's a word, but the I asshole, love that
1: word. I use it all the time.
2: <laughs> I, I pin it um on people, particularly fundamentalists in the late nineteenth, mm. early twentieth century, who taught us how to read the Bible incorrectly, who taught us how to use the Bible in a really terrible way, who transformed the Bible into a you know weapon of mass destruction. Because, you know, if we were to look at a, pa- look at a statement like, you know, go take your child outside the camp and stone them to death or, you know, uh, slaves obey your masters in, in any other context, well, none of us would flinch, you know, to say, mm-hmm. oh, this is immoral. This is wrong. You know, but we've been taught that the Bible can't be wrong, that the Bible is perfect, that the God is, that the Bible is essentially God incarnated. You know, and paper and ink. And so then, you know, we we come to these passages and we say, well, what, what do we do? You know, I know I did for most of my life, tried to come up with middle gymnastics, whether that was where, you know, academic or apologetic or, or what, uh, you know, but there's another option. And, and that's just to say that these people are, are wrong. You know, they're <laughs> just like we are because they're God breathed and we're God breathed and God breathed things aren't perfect. And so when Paul says something like that, it's okay to say Paul was wrong because he's an imperfect person. And I find some hope in that because it says that, you know, that this this story is real, that they're not trying mm-hmm. to cover up things, that they're not trying to hide their dirty laundry. You know, the Bible is full of stories of murder and rape and abuse and exploitation and idolatry and, you know, you name it, um, by the people of God. And so it, for me, there's a, there's a weird silver lining in all of that, because when I look at that, I see myself not that i've committed murder or done any of those things but i see a person who i see people who want to be who they are called and created to be but fail constantly you know Mm -hmm. and so for me when i if i bring origin augustine to bear on this and say that you know what god trusted people to tell the story of the people of god then i can approach that work and say you know this is this is the product of people because people are involved it will always be imperfect you know, um, okay. if God wanted a perfect Bible, God could have shown up just like you said, you know, in person or the Holy Spirit could have appeared in some form and, you know, dictated it or, or things. And there are people who believe that. But for me, I, I think the blame comes on um, more on the church than God. I mean, I think God can be blamed for you know, evil and all sorts of you know other things that um, carry serious weight. But this particular one, I put the blame more at the church and how the church has taught the Bible particularly in conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist circles for the past century, you know, century and a half, because we've been taught that the Bible is something that it's not.
1: Mm. So so tell me a little bit about what you... You just mentioned something that you... If I heard you correctly, that you blame God for, for evil. Did I, Did I hear you correctly?
2: I wouldn't blame God for evil. I think that we bear that blame because okay. evil does not exist outside of our ability to incarnate it like our mm-hmm. ability to bring it to do evil okay. right it's like okay. evil was not some malevolent force that just kind of hovers in the ether floating around the mm-hmm. world just magically appearing you know when you know there's a, a genocide you know or a, a robbery or, or whatever you know whatever ex- in the stream i mean there are people involved you know making the mm-hmm. decisions to do those things my problem, and I think the issue of theodicy, I mean, you know, how do you explain uh, presence of evil in the face of a loving God, you know, is why God doesn't do more to mitigate, you know, evil. And, you know, evil is is many things, you know, it's not just, you know, those big terrible things that we think of like Hitler. Um, there's the evil of like natural disasters, you know, but some yeah. of that is our own fault. Um, but then what about the evil of genetic anomalies, you know, my wife's an OBGYN and she'll have babies that are born sometimes without skulls or without lungs or hearts or some other, you know, horrific thing that causes either the baby to not live um, or parents to go through great pain or, or both. We could imagine a world where that never happens, you know, exactly. and it wouldn't be all that different than what we have now except better. So, you know, there's there's the argument that we live in the best possible world and so that is supposed to explain, you know, the situation we're in. But, you know, I think God because God creates, you know, God has an obligation to that creation to care for it and to love it. And I think that's what we see in the person of Jesus. And I think that's what we see, mm. Je- you know, God doing in the person of Jesus is trying to answer this question of evil. But if if God is greater than anything that we can imagine and is infinite and all these other, you know, attributes, then um, So God needs yeah. to answer that in heaven. Why why is there evil? So yeah, i, I don't know Yeah, seriously the answer yeah. to the question but
1: so there's you know it's bringing to mind two things right in me that that could bo- that could both lead us into very different directions so i'm trying to decide which one i want to go with but on the one hand i want to go with like process theology and why I, I really love process theology which maybe i'll go in that direction just so we can start off there and then the other question i'm going to is like i swear the next book i'm going to write is called the psychopathic god because i want to talk <laughs> about like all the times that god really shows up like a psychopath in scripture which is like, for example, the flood, right? Oh, you pissed me off. So I'm just going to kill you all. But meanwhile, I sent you down these, like, I'm going to tell you thou shalt shalt not murder, except for me. I get to murder anybody whenever I want Mm -hmm. to, right? Like that's, that's really messed up, you know? But I think that that's one of the reasons that I love process theology, even though I I don't, I haven't really, uh, I mean, I did dive into it in, in seminary, but the way that I like to describe it is that it, it is um, a theology that says that God is not necessarily all-powerful, but is always present, right? And and gives us this thing called the holy lore, so that it, in any given moment, we can experience God's next best option for us in, in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So even if we have embodied evil ourselves— at any given time, God is present with us. God is offering us the next best opportunity to do good, to, to make things told, right, again. And um, we can take that or not. And if we don't take it, if we choose something else, if we choose to embody evil again, don't worry about the dogs. It's totally cool. <laughs> if we all choose right, to... him
2: em- found a ball. and It's totally fine. playing fun. with himself.
1: It's all good. It's all good. It's, this is life, man. This is life post-pandemic. But but if if God we we make the the a choice that is not to, um, God is still going to meet us there and give us the next great best opportunity, right? So that's why I love process theology. Yeah. Do you do you identify like do you how do you feel about process theology? Is that something? Is that kind of where your theology lands? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I think it resonates a lot with me. I mean, there's certainly a finite amount of things that God can do. You know, I mean. Mm-hmm. In the philosoph, you know, basic sense, I mean, God can't make four sided triangles, right? I mean, that's just yeah. Yeah. that's that's not a thing, um, you know. So there's the logically impossible that God cannot do, and then there are the things that I would say you could say God cannot do, or I would, and I'm okay with that. I'm also okay with God. I don't know if I'm completely okay with God chooses not to do, but that's just the position that we're in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that you know. I've been reading a lot of Carl, or I read a biography about Carl Barth um, lately, who was just a fascinating individual um, who mm. uh, lived with his wife and mistress his entire life. So.
1: Oh, interesting
2: story. Um, Kitchen table polyamory. Did, <laughs> yes, did have a, you know, some stuff to contribute to theology. Um, but, you know, his big, one of his big things was that he's, his theology starts with, with Jesus, you know, mm. and kind of works out, uh, you know, from there. And, if, if, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, I see a God who has chosen or maybe not um, to bind God's self to creation in some sense. And that seems to limit God in certain ways. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I I think that there are natural limits, you know, uh, like just logical things that, you know, don't make sense. You know, how you know can God make a rock so big that God can't move, you know, that kind of thing. Right there. There's, you know, things that God has chosen for whatever reason to, to do or not. Cause I mean, you can look at miracles and say that every time a miracle or, you know, every time someone named something as a miracle, that that just is a damning indictment of God, because it means that God could act, you know, um, and has acted, but then chooses not to at other times. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a huge can of worms to get into. But, you know, for me, okay. I, I see a God who was chosen to enter into relationship with creation, by the act of creation and by continually to walk beside creation. And I see a God who is affected by that decision, by the decision to be in that relationship. And so I see a God in, you know, the Hebrew Bible that seems to feel apologetic, you know, I'm sorry that created creation, you know, in Genesis, but then, you know, God also, I didn't know phrases, you know, that you see in the prophets, I made mistakes, things like that, Mm. you know, and so I, I see, in the story of the bible and its many different books the story of a of a dynamic um god who is affected in a very real way and so right. the idea of a transcendent god who is not affected in any way is not something that i find attractive ideologically but it's also not an idea that that makes sense to me in light of the incarnation um so Oh
1: i love that uh, yeah, i love that
2: uh, yeah, I was just saying, I don't see how you can talk about an impassable God in the context of God who becomes passable in the form of Jesus. Yeah,
1: so. that's beautiful. I, um, I'm um i reminded of, and I think I've probably said this in other episodes already, but it's it's stuck with me. It's so powerful. In one of my classes in seminary, we had a guest speaker who was a rabbi who came in, and he told us that the, the scripture that is often translated as, uh, I am that I am, Is actually, that's actually a really horrible translation. And the actual Hebrew cannot truly be accurately translated. But if it could, it would be more closely A a closer translation would be, I will become all that I have yet to become, Mm. which speaks to an ever changing God, right? A a God that is, is evolving and learning and, um, and learning about, about God's self and, um, and become and learning about this creation, uh, that, that they created, right? And Would so it, it's.
2: Go ahead. No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I, I, I was just going to say, yeah, and, and it doesn't have to be an either or thing, you know. And I think, and that kind of ties back, you know, to the Bible, uh, to the Bible. It does tie back to the Bible, but it ties <laughs> back to the to the book, you know, because one of the pushbacks that you'll hear when you criticize inerrancy is the idea well if i can't trust part of the book or part of the bible how can i trust you know any of the bible you know and that's just a false dichotomy for a number of reasons number one again like we talked before that the bible is not a book you know it's a collection of books and they have different genres and they operate in different ways with different assumptions and things like that and so you can absolutely take part of it literally you know and um, or even say you know this is historically inaccurate and then still trust another part just like you could pick up one book in a library and you know uh, mm. not, and it not be great another one you know be wonderful you know that sort of thing
1: and also i think also understanding the the cultural ways in which the people the ancient people approached scripture and engaged right. with scripture which was very i mean you know the there the jewish tradition of midrash right of of you know expanding stories and all of that kind of stuff. I think that we need to understand that maybe some of what started off as scripture is actually midrash and became scripture. Does that make sense? Right. Right. Yeah. Like that there was expansion of a story that was happening because that was part of the custom of like the ways that they engaged. Right.
2: One of one of the the books that I read that I really loved um, during our research was called the gospels before the book by um, Matthew Larson. And so one of the, you know, deflections that you see from folks who believe in biblical inerrancy is the idea that the Bible is inerrant in the original documents or the original manuscripts. And so the idea being that, okay, sure, the Bible as we have it now may not be perfect, but when it was first written down, it was. And what he says is, you know, is that, that or the argument that he makes is that that's a misconception or misunderstanding of how the Bible was compiled, or at least the Gospels he looks at Mark in particular and says, you know, it's likely that this wasn't written down like a book, like we would sit down, like I sit down and wrote chapter by chapter of Cubreath, but that it probably first began, you know, as a circulation of what were effectively sermon notes, you know, for people to mm. remember the, you know, basic teachings of Jesus so that they could go out, you know, into all the world and, and proclaim the gospel. Well, they needed to remember what that was because not everybody was around. And as you met new converts, you know, they may not know the stories. And so you get these you know, little parables and paracopes and, and, uh, beatitudes. Um, and they eventually come together, you know, under the hand of an editor and you get the gospels. And, I like and that, some
1: of them get edited out, right? Because, Oh, I, we didn't, we don't like those like the gospel of Mary. We were just going to, you, you
2: know, although, you know, the, the, I talk about that some in the book too, because you know, one of the important things, you know, for me was establishing like the history, like how did this book, you know, come about and, you know, the, like the gospel, of Mary gospel, of Thomas, you know, all those sorts of things, um, you know, there wasn't the Dan Brown sort of scenario at Nicaea um, where, okay. you know, they were going after Gnostics or something like that. It, it's more an organic thing um, where, you know, the reason that these letters, I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's really weird that someone's personal letters, you know, become scripture. But the reason they do is that people found them helpful. You know, they found okay. that they resonated. Um, it's the same thing with Old Testament where you read um, like these great stories of the Exodus or Noah or, or, or whatever, you know, whether or not they happen historically in our sense of, of the word, the truth of those stories resonated with the people, you know, who told them because they had been in times of trial and tribulation and seen God, you know, come to their rescue. And so, um, yeah, it's, I like that image of, you know, these notes coming together, um, mm-hmm. because it, it speaks to the, Organic nature of Scripture, the humanness, you know, of Scripture, and uh, you're gonna have to edit the silence because I had a third one, and now my mind is blanking. Ah. It was gonna be a good one too. Um, oh, I remember the chaos of early Christianity. Ah, um, I I love. So I, I mean, Christian history is my thing, and so it's one went to school for it, and I love reading all things. But the things, the thing I've been gravi- gravitating to a lot lately is that sort of mysterious period of the first like real like century like i'm fascinated to know what like christian life was like for the earliest christians you know that between like acts and nicaea you know like what what is going on because we you know we have some stuff you know but we don't have a ton um but what we do have tells us that christianity is probably not even the right word christianities you know i mean we've Mm. got all these different traditions and things going on from the get-go you know i mean you have people arguing you can see this in the new testament Um itself and so, yeah, I I I like that idea of like notes and coming together and the organic you know ness of of particularly the New Testament coming together because it's it's true to life today. You know, I mean, if, Mm -hmm. if you and I are trying to to do like podcasts or books or whatever, I mean, this is people coming at it with their different perspectives and their different thoughts and trying to understand this unknowable thing, which is God. Um, and yeah. so inevitably, you're going to have different perspectives, and that's a good thing.
1: Right. I think that one of the things that I'm even, I'm just realizing this, you know, I kind of knew it in a vague way, but I'm just realizing this as I'm listening to you speak, is that essentially what happened when the Bible was brought together was that it was kind of canonized, it was canonized, it was codified, it was institutionalized, right? So we talk about the institutionalized Christian church, at least I do a lot. Because th- I think that th- that's a very different experience than that mystical, mis- m- uh, mysterious period that you're talking about yeah. of the the early church, and who knows what was actually happening but the Christianities that were that were emerging, or maybe an even more accurate uh, term would be the different sects of Judaism that were emerging out of out of that, because in, in some ways that's what it was, right? Um, so. So I just I just think that's really interesting. And I think the thing that uh, my natural born rebellious nature always wants to point to is the fact that when you canonize and institutionalize and codify certain documents, policies, whatever, you are by choice, excluding others that are may have just be be just as powerful and potent and you know, and important um, to the people that maybe you're trying to quiet or silence or things like that, right? Sure. So I always am asking that question. I'm always right. and, and so when we have this thing, this this bound and this book that is bound and, in leather and has your family name in the front of it, right? like that is a, is basically a manifestation of the institutionalized church, and I think it's really important to recognize that and to well, understand.
2: And not just yeah. a church, but one particular, because, you know, the Catholic canon, uh, Roman Catholic canon looks different than a lot of Protestant canons, which looks different right. than our, uh, Ethiopian canon, which looks different than, you know, not Orthodox. And, and, you know, that's definitely a point that I, I drive home a lot, you know, is that even when we say the Bible, well, whose Bible, you know, like right. who, whose list of books. And yeah, you know, I've wondered before, you know, in, in an old blog post years ago, about what Christianity would look like if the, the Bible had never been written and the story of faith had remained like an oral tradition, you know, mm-hmm. how, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe it would be chaos, you know, but I like chaos, but you know, it, it, it would give us more freedom, I think, and flexibility to, to tell the story because like we're talking about God, you know, whether or not God changes and things like that. And, and, you know, it's not an either or, I mean, because you can say that God's, Eternal nature that God is love never changes, but that God, um, is affected and changes, you know, in relationship, you know, to us, you know, as people. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we need that flexibility in telling the story, you know, of the people of God. I mean, historically, you know, that's what people have done. Like you see for Saint mm-hmm. Francis is famous for creating these, uh, nativity sets that we all take for granted now and he made them look like italian villages because that's what would resonate for those people because they had no frame of reference you know for the middle east in the what 13th okay. century i mean some people did but most people didn't um and so yeah i if, if nothing else you know i hope people leave you know like god breathe with a permission slip or a of yeah. freedom that that they can pick this book up and And not make it their own. I I don't like that language because you hit on this before, like we're part of a community. You know, this book doesn't Mm -hmm. exist in a vacuum. You know, this collection, Mm -hmm. whatever you call it, doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, it it has this long history and there's all these people uh, that are involved. Because, you know, once it becomes, like you said, institutionalized, then you have authority figures who are telling you, you know, this is what it means. This is what it doesn't mean. And that's where we go back to before where, you know, I think like these stumbling blocks and whether or not God, you know, like origin says, allows them in there is more of a people problem than a God problem, not that that completely eliminates God's responsibility, but you know it's it comes down to a to for me at least it comes down to how we've been taught how to use the Bible and how to read it and how to understand it. You know that doesn't solve you know all the problems, but you know if you're told by authority figures who are telling you that your salvation, your eternal destiny, whether or not you go to heaven or hell, depends on whether or not you believe this or interpret this or behave you know this certain way, then you end up with not a gospel of grace, but a new law.
1: Mm, yes. Yes. So I want to end with the billboards, but I do want us to get to, uh, before we get to the billboards, because I think that's going to be really fun, a fun way to, to end our conversation, but I would love to understand. Uh, let's get into the person of Jesus. Like who does Jesus say he is in scripture what you know who who is jesus is he what is the res? was the resurrection an actual literal resurrection or was it a figurative just an idea what 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 say you zach
2: (laughs) that's a great question um i try to make space in the book for folks who want to land on either end of that spectrum um so, you know, for me, I profess faith in a historical resurrection, and there's a lot of theology that goes, flows out of that or that, that begins that. But, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time in the book as well talking about how important um, myth is to the biblical writers. Um, because, you know, most of us have been conditioned, again, going back to the institutional and authoritarian, you know, sort of uh, framework, that myth and truth are polar opposites. That if something is myth, then it's necessarily fiction and therefore untrue. Um, and the Bible um, and myths, really in general, don't operate that way. But we've been conditioned to think of truth as these sort of like historical objective facts, um, and that's just not true. You know, so take an example. They use the book of Icarus. You know, Icarus. There was no one named Icarus, I mean maybe someone, but there's no one who you know put wings on their back and literally flew too close to the sun. But the truth of that story is about hubris, you know, and arrogance. And those things are true, you know, regardless of whether or not there was a historical Icarus. Um, and the Bible really taps into this. Um, the book of Revelation, in particular, my first book on rapture, I talked about this a lot, That the power of myth is that unlike historical events that are bound by a particular time and context and people myth transcends space and time because that story of icarus was written 2000 years ago in greece um and yet you and i are here sitting in the united states you know 2000 years later and we still get the truth of that and so i think if we can begin to understand truth in that way then it opens up the bible to a whole lot of possibilities and the faith and the church in general into a bigger tent because there's space for people who are like no you know i need to affirm a historical you know, Jesus walking on the water. I need to believe that. Or there's folks that say, you know, that's not physically possible, but I love the image of a God who conquers the chaos, right? Because that's what you see Jesus doing when he walks over the chaotic waters and calms the seas. It's this echo of, of God hovering over the chaotic waters in Genesis and ordering creation. And so, you know, if we can stop being so dogmatic, so authoritarian, Um, and let the spirit breathe new life, let the spirit, you know, Mm -hmm. take the scales off our eyes and see the Bible in new ways. Then I think there's room, room for both.
1: I, I love that you brought up myth as, as a form of truth, right? Because I think that I, like, I've often thought about this myself, like the hubris that is involved Mm -hmm. in insisting that my unbelievable things are more believable than somebody else's or another culture's unbelievable things. Right. You know, my unbelievable thing of a god partying the Red Sea so that a whole army can go through it and then conveniently just happens to drown the other army that's chasing them or, you know, my, uh, the, the, the person that I worship happens to be resurrected, but the Egyptian myth, the Egyptian story that is very similar to that resurrection story is myth, but mine, mine is real, right? right? The hubris that's involved in that kind of like approach to to stories in general, I think is something that we need to examine in each of us, in each of ourselves, right? So that we can really extract the capital T truth that you're talking about that's in right. any kind of narrative and myth and story that we can think about.
2: Exactly. I, you know, the... Bedrock of my faith, I think, is is or if I had to find, we're talking before about verses that were out of context. One that I love that is in context is is Matthew twenty five, and for me, it it shapes my faith in foundational ways. You know, because and this is just me ripping off Tony Campolo, but you know, you you have this one instance in the entire gospel is really the entire New Testament or the Bible in general. Where Jesus explains exactly what he's going to do on it. On, I almost said independence day. And I guess in a way, that's not <laughs> wrong. Um, but on judgment day. And it's not, you know, um, standing there at the pearly gates with a list of doctrines. Like, did you affirm the trinity? Did you believe in the virgin birth? So on parts, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was thirsty. Give me something to drink. And the people there, you know, aren't even professing Christians necessarily. And so you know, it seems to me. In my reading of the Gospels and the life of Jesus, is that Jesus is more concerned with how, about what we at least try to, to do, to, that, that we are trying to create this loving community, that we are trying to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor and our, as ourselves. And how we get there, particularly just intellectually in our own minds, doesn't seem to be that important to Jesus. As long as mm-hmm. what we're thinking gets us there, right? And so it's Jesus isn't standing again at the pearly gate saying, Well, I know you loved your neighbor and you fed the hungry and you treated the least of these like they were me, but you thought the resurrection was an abstract concept, you know, or a myth um, when it was really a fact, or vice versa, where you thought it was a fact, but clearly this was a myth. Um, Jesus doesn't seem to be as concerned about those things as we are. And again, mm. I think a lot of it ties back to the fundamentalist takeover, you know, of Christianity, particularly in the late 19th, early 20th century, that teaches us that, that no, you know, we're, you know, Darwin showed up and now he's trying to tell us how to do things, but we really know that, you know, the facts and I get all that history stuff in the book. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Jesus isn't as concerned with some of the things that that seem of eternal consequence to us.
1: Mm, yeah. Love that. So. You Before we hit the record button, you were telling us about some, we, we were talking about some billboards that you might be uh, putting up in, in your local area, I think. So I would love for you to, because they just sound so fun, <laughs> I would love to tell us a little bit about those billboards. And also, I, I want to know the stories behind them, not just the billboard, but what they say and why you're saying it, what, where, what, what your context and your backup how you're backing up your story there.
2: (laughs) Sure. Um, One of the, that's a good word, disappointing things about publishing in the year of our Lord, 2023, is that uh, as an author, marketing is basically all on you. Um, Unless you already have, you know, like a large established platform, you know, publishers in general don't want to take the risk of, you know, investing much money because most books, you know, don't, earn back their, their contracts, let alone, you know, hit a bestsellers list. So folks like me, uh, who are small time authors, you know, have to, uh, well, I mean, my publisher is great. I love them and, and they're helpful, but you know, I have to think outside the box, you know, to try to break through the noise of, you know, a dozen other books coming out the same day that mine does. And so as part of that, trying to think outside the box, um, come up with several different ideas, but one that I'm working on right now is a, a billboard campaign in Nashville, which, you know, obviously kind of seems to isolate that campaign just to Nashville, but Nashville is kind of evangelical Mecca and they, uh, what happens here, you know, can echo maybe not through eternity, but at least, you know, through, uh, the broader, um, church world in the United States. So anyway, um, I, I wanted to do something that's not just the, hey, here's my book and it comes out, you know, on May 9th, but something that you know would be eye-catching and a conversation starter. Because for me, that's, you know, kind of my brand, um, a little bit provocative, have been for, you know, 10 years or so with my writing and, and like saying what I, I want to say. So anyway, a friend of mine came up with a particular idea. I, I had a couple like a little one-liners and he suggested uh taking Bible verses and sort of flipping them on their heads. Cause so one thing you see um a lot you know here in the bible belt or you know whether it's street preachers with their signs or folks with their facebook posts or or whatever that you know like to proof text with particular bible verses and so they'll say no you know gay folks are going to hell because here's a bible verse you know or trans people are going to hell because here's one i made up or you know so on and so on so the thought was that because big or foundational part of god breathe is to challenge folks to uh, reassess you know, or rethink some of their assumptions about the Bible and what it means and what it actually says, why not take some of these verses that say things that are contrary to what we assume that the Bible says and plaster them on billboards and strategic places. So for example, um, Nashville has the unfortunate um, situation, I guess, of of being home now to the Daily Wire and Matt Walsh and Ben Shapiro Mm -hmm. and the rest of those people um, um but their headquarters is right next to the interstate um or just about next to the interstate um in downtown nashville and next to that is a billboard that i um, am hoping to purchase here in the next couple days and so the sign that we're going to put up on on there says uh, the gop are sodomites and then underneath <laughs> it says uh ezekiel 16 And so if you've read Ezekiel 16, you know that it actually lays out the sin of Sodom and it is not being gay. It's turning away the poor and the least of these and not caring for the stranger. And so I thought that would be appropriate for the Daily Wire. And from that, um, we've got some more of them (laughs) looking at kind of still tweaking those, but taking things like, um, you know, the abortion debate obviously is really big. Um, And so, you know, a lot of folks I know I did growing up evangelical. Thought you know the Bible would clearly condemn adult abortion, but if you look at Numbers five, you know there's God laying out how to do an abortion. Um, so we're going to do one that says you know either the Bible is pro-choice or the Bible supports abortion. It's kind of down to just like a formatting kind of thing, and so doing doing a few things like that, um, hoping it, it grabs some folks' attention around here and gets people talking and thinking, and uh, and we'll see. But if we can you know, control Matt Walsh, it's 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 all worth it.
1: <laughs> yes. I love it too. Trolling Matt Walsh, like especially because you know Zach, you and I are uh, friends on Facebook, on this, on the socials, and I love the way you you um, post your trolls, <laughs> like, the, like all the comments that you get. Um, I have a, a similar experience in the work that I do as well with getting the the, the fun hate mail. So I always love that you uh, you you share the the, the ways in which. Christians share their love. With
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's really one There's word for it.
1: Some Christians, yes, yes. So I really appreciate you. I have loved this conversation. It's so good to, to chat with you. And thank you for having me. Take care. Talk to you. We'll see you. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at God is not an asshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.